Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Sternley, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, further to reporting on advances at the battlefront, we discuss the sudden implosion of the Russian ruble, the arrest of three suspected Kremlin spies here in Britain, and do a deep dive into the alleged failures in NATO training provided to Ukrainian forces and how such deficiencies might be remedied. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 15th of August. One year and 172 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor of Defence, Dominic Nichols, and calling in from Kharkiv, Daniel Ridley, who has trained thousands of Ukrainian forces via the Independent Trident Defence Initiative. I started by asking Dom for the latest developments in Ukraine. Well, hi Francis, hi everyone, hi Dan, good to speak to you again. So the news uh, this morning, Russian cruise and ballistic missile attacks that took place from around 4 a.m. this morning for about an hour and a half were concentrated on the cities of Dnipro in the centre of Ukraine and Lviv and Lutsk in the west. They've hit more civilian infrastructure. Swedish bearings manufacturer SKF said that three of their employees were killed by the strike on its factory in Lutsk. Lutsk is a lovely city over in the west, medieval castle in the middle, about 250 k's west of Kiev and only 50 k's short of the Polish border. Lviv is a bit further to the southwest and even closer to the Polish border. Authorities there in Lviv say that more than 100 apartments were destroyed in the strikes last night. No reports or couldn't find any news of of any casualties in Dnipro. Mikhailo Podolyak, advisor to President Zelensky, said Russian crews and ballistic missiles attacked residential buildings and industrial enterprises in those cities. He said deliberate large-scale attacks on civilians uh, solely for the sake of killing and psychological pressure. This is an undeniable manifestation of Russia's terrorist activity. It is only the evil that is punished that does not return. We need missiles, air defence systems and closed skies, not talks about appeasement and negotiations with a Russian serial killer. That was from Mr Podolyak. Elsewhere, there's a somewhat confused picture from the southern front. So some Russian military blogging community, some in the community, are saying that Ukraine has broken through Russian defences in the Zaporizhia village of Robotine last night. So this is about 20 case north of the key logistic town of, of Tokmak. This is on the western of those three axes of advance in the south that, that I talk about regularly. So the military informant telegram channel said the Ukrainian armed forces caught on to the northern outskirts of Robotine and their reconnaissance group even managed to reach the centre. However, another site, Rybar, said that Ukrainian forces were being held at Robotine and have shifted that advance a few k's to the east, trying to make headway around the uh, town of Vobove. 
So Tokmak, which is the, the big town in the area, 20k south, that's an important road and rail hub for Russian forces across that whole southern region. So that's what they're trying to trying to get there, or at least cut those rail and road lines on the way to Melitopol and Berdyansk and the Sea of Azov. Now, sticking in Zaporizhia Oblast, we're going about 40k west of Robotine here. Ukraine's MOD reporting this morning that a reporting on a verbal dispute between Kadyrovites, that's fighters supporting or fighters for the Chechen warlord Ramzan Kadyrov, a fight between them and Russian troops who came from the Dagestan region of Russia. So a fight in the village of Mikhailivka, about 40 k's north of Melitopol, uh, very near the front line. Apparently, the fight broke out while Russian propagandists were filming a video with a high-ranking Kadyrovite commander. Both sides opened up on each other, opened fire on each other with small arms. And during the clash, somebody was killed. We're not sure if it was a Chechen or a Russian, but that then led to a mass punch-up, really, open confrontation between the units. Now, the Ukraine... Ukraine MOD said they use grenade launchers, grenades and small arms. I presume they mean grenades and small arms. They're not, they're not using the grenade launchers to sort of pearl at each other. Um, but as a result of that fighting, Ukraine MOD said the Dagestanis came on top. There were 20 killed and 40 wounded across both forces. And the commander of the Kadrovites unit was punished by being sent to the front line. So, you know, it's all, it's all kicking off down there. Now... Staying in the area, but 60 k's east, just inside Donetsk Oblast. But we're going to stay with the Chechens, a force we've seen not a huge amount of recently, despite Ramzan Kadyrov's claim that his fighters are are superb. And he actually, he put a post, post out a couple of days ago on the 10th of August, praising one of his units. I mean, they're small, and high, small but high profile, the Chechen fighters. Kadyrov promotes his units in, a, in an attempt to raise his stock a la... Prigozhin, yeah, he distanced himself from Prigozhin's the the, the mutiny thing, but um, he he pops up every now and again. But anyway, so so we're just inside Donetsk Oblast now, and Kadyrov saying that his Vostok battalion, or sorry, reporting that his Vostok battalion is saying that Ukrainian forces have taken over Eurozhina, which is uh, about fifty k southwest of Donetsk. This is just um, on the on the east side of. Um, um, Staromayorsk, but the Vostok battalion said the village had been fiercely contested for days and resembles a meat grinder. It said in a post on Telegram, sympathy does not come to visit on the battlefield, but seeing how much damage the enemy is doing in Urugina, we experience feelings that are difficult to describe. We lost the town while causing such damage that part of our consciousness refuses to understand the motives of the Ukrainian command. Not entirely sure what they mean there. Anyway, a spokesperson for Ukraine's MOD said... Uh, the fighting in the, in the area they were successful and they are consolidating the achieved milestones now a report from the Kiev independent media outlet saying that up in the north now Russia tried to conduct a, a cross-border raid in the Chernihiv region Ukrainian forces are reported to have prevented two Russian sabotage groups crossing over the state border. This comes from the Joint Forces Commander, Sergei Naiv. He said, An observation post sentry noticed two armed groups of Russian militants approaching the control strip from different sides. A shootout ensued and there was artillery involved. I mean, it sounds quite a big, quite a big contact. And said that the Russian forces suffered losses, wounded and killed, and, and then withdrew back over to Russia. Now, a couple more. There are reports that Russia's Black Sea Fleet flagship, not the submarine, the other one, has returned to combat duty after being damaged by Ukrainian drone strikes last year. So this is coming from Ukrainian Defence Forces in Odessa that said the Admiral Makarov, which is an Admiral Gorovich-class frigate, took over the mantle of of flagship after the uh, Mosfa was sunk. Defence sources saying that that frigate has been detected in the Black Sea armed with eight calibre cruise missiles, or rather it's been detected and we know that she can carry eight calibre cruise missiles. So this ship, you may remember last October, it was one of three Russian naval ships damaged in a strike by naval and and airborne drones in in Sevastopol. Uh, Admiral Makarov, I mean, a, a new ship commissioned in 2017, the third of six. Now... I mean, it's not it's not good that she's back at sea, but I think whilst Ukraine would have hoped to 
destroy the ship or render her permanently out of action, I, I reckon they'd be happy with a, a 10-month return on investment for a few autonomous air and sea strike vehicles. But, you know, it's not, it's not good. We know that uh, Russia fires cruise missiles from the Black Sea into, into the country and has been targeting grain facilities from there. And then just finally for now, um, Sweden's defence minister has said that the country is going to send ammunition and spare parts to Ukraine as part of uh, Sweden's latest military support package worth almost three and a half billion kroner, about £250 million. So Paul Johnson told reporters, we have to prepare ourselves for the fact this could be a long lasting war. And we also have a long term perspective so that we can support those platforms that we are sending to Ukraine in a lasting manner. Yeah, good. Long long term. So this is the 13th aid package from Sweden since the start of this full-scale invasion. Total of about 20 billion kroner, one, 1.45 billion pounds. And just connected to that, the latest US military aid package was announced by Alexei Reznikov, who's giving some more details just in the last hour. He said that this package is worth $200 million and will include Patriot air defence systems, HIMARS, rockets, mine-clearing equipment, artillery and tank ammunition, javelin, tow and other anti-armour systems. Tow is tube-launched, optically-tracked, wire-guided missiles, and a load of other bits and pieces, including 12 million small arms rounds and grenades. So, yeah, more more military aid. And I, I do welcome I know I know they think, a lot of people think along these lines, but it's good to have it absolutely stated by Mr Johnson that you, you need to plan for the long term and um, send support platforms that will endure or as in mechanisms to endure so it's good that he's i think it's good that he's actually come out publicly with that and i will i will leave the the spy story uk spy story till the end thanks francis thanks tom the lead political story today is on a subject all too familiar to regular listeners and that is the health of the russian economy how many false dawns have there been now? God, I'm losing count. But there is an unprecedented gathering by the Central Bank of Russia that's been called following a very sharp drop in the value of the nation's currency, which has now reached its lowest point in a span of 16 months. So the monetary unit has exhibited a consistent depreciation trend from the start of this year, crossing what is a very significant threshold of 100 units per dollar, which it passed on Monday. Its decline of 26% throughout this year can be attributed to a substantial reduction in earnings from exports, coupled with an escalation in expenditures related to the military sector, of course. Consequently, this performance places it as the third weakest global currency of this year. And this downward spiral has prompted high-ranking officials within the Kremlin to advocate for an elevation in the expenses associated with borrowing. Now, some months ago, we asked what signs Russians should look for that this war is biting economically. And I would suggest that when the central bank says there's no cause for panic, that might just be a red flag. Indeed, Russia has raised interest rates from 8.5% to 12%, ostensibly to limit the risks to price stability. It's quite extraordinary, though, how fast the ruble has eroded in the last 12 months. Savings in rubles have halved almost in value, according to some of our sources on the ground. There are clearly economic challenges in the country at present, which has led to a decline in earnings from commodities, significant reductions in government spending and, according to reports, congested rail yards filled with empty Chinese cargo containers due to a lack of exportable goods. The Ministry of Finance, and I know this is all getting a bit technical here, but this is important stuff for those who are following it closely, so just bear with me. The Ministry of Finance has utilised 48% of the designated budget, but has managed to generate only 40% of the projected revenues. And this has resulted in a deficit surpassing around 134% of the planned amount. To counter this, the government has scaled down its daily expenditure for June to 44 billion rubles, half of the average spending over the preceding five months. So it's had to reduce its spending to counteract what's going on. Moreover, there's been a 19% decline in federal tax collections compared to the same period in 2022. Again, sizable. Notably, too, revenue from oil and gas has dwindled by half, dropping from 5.6 to 2.8 trillion rubles. 
not an insignificant amount, but that is a substantial drop for an economy that relies on those exports. And indeed, European market in that space has clearly been bled, forcing oil corporations to offer substantial discounts to Indian and Chinese producers, something that we've talked about and covered at length in the past. Now, many listeners will hear this and think that this has to be a consequence of the sanctions, that they are finally cutting through. If only it were that simple. I've been looking into this. Now, Whilst it will certainly be shaping the economic landscape, a significant paper published in the Journal of Management Studies called Do Economic Sanctions Work? Evidence from the Russia-Ukraine Conflict has recently examined the impact of sanctions on Russian firms and concludes that they've remained more robust than expected and looks into the reasons why that is the case. It won't come as a shock, of course, to our listeners, but to many, this remains still a very much an uncertain question. Now, I'll quote a few extracts from it. The use of international sanctions to deny access to international markets has a long and rich history, from trade embargoes of France during the Napoleonic Wars to the international economic sanctions of the apartheid government of South Africa in the 1980s to sanctions against Iraq in the 90s and early 2000s. The evidence about the net effect of sanctions is mixed, with some studies reporting some negative effect on the target country and its firms, while others suggesting that sanctions do not always have the desired effect of modifying a country's policy and may have a limited economic impact on the GDP and trade patterns of sanctioned countries. In this study, we focus on the reactions of Russian firms to sanctions imposed by the US and the EU after the 2014 Russian annexation of Crimea and beyond, looking at their strategic responses to institutional processes that resulted from said sanctions regime. It then goes on. We demonstrate the limited value of targeted sanctions. We show that shielding by the Russian government helped firms develop effective responses to mitigate the negative effect of sanctions. The delegitimizing impact of sanctions does increase the cost of doing business in the international markets and may lead to opportunity costs related to lost international collaboration. However, as we show with the help of a few examples, Russian firms adopt a range of strategic responses that help them cope with and to reduce the negative consequences of sanctions. So it's a really interesting report. I recommend listeners check it out. It's worth remembering that imports from the EU to Belarus increased by 64% compared to last year, despite all of the restrictions offered from sanctions. A big chunk of that we know is going to Russia. Evidently, this is a scheme to circumnavigate sanctions. And there are many, many others through the back door of former Soviet states as well, as we've reported on. Nevertheless, all of that said, the Russian economy can hardly be described as healthy at the moment. Yet that may be due more to the huge military expenditure than the direct impact of sanctions. So it is important to separate those two issues. Now, just the other story I wanted to talk about is interesting. And it relates to two Russian nationals who've been arrested in Poland for allegedly trying to recruit for the Wagner Group amid mounting unease, of course, over the mercenary group's presence in neighbouring Belarus. So Poland's interior ministry announced the arrest yesterday, saying the men had been paid by Moscow to distribute pro-Wagner leaflets emblazoned with the group's logo and the message, join us. Apparently they were giving them out on street corners and in public, public lavatories. Uh, no comment. Uh, the duo fly posted around uh, 300 leaflets in Krakow and Warsaw. They were among 3,000 pro-Wagner items of propaganda said to be in their possession. Now, I mention this mainly to draw attention to just how seriously Poland is taking the situation in Belarus. It's yet further evidence of that. But if Moscow wanted to sow discord and distract attention from Ukraine, one could argue that these kind of small-scale operations do just do that. They of course, attract headlines, they attract frustration in the countries and lead to police time and resources having to be spent on that rather than other perhaps more dangerous activities that spies are operating on and in in countries around Europe. The other reason I draw attention to it as a little bit of a side note is that many listeners have written in asking why Ukraine doesn't try to wage that kind of informational warfare of its own. And I'll quote a message we received from Mark in London. 
He says, we know that the Russian public at large is sheltered from the truth about the war, particularly things like casualty numbers. Leaflet drops on major cities might be a perfect way of short-circuiting this news blackout, just as happened during the Second World War. Furthermore, the likelihood of success of drones reaching intended targets and delivering a payload of said propaganda would be much higher. Leaflets can be dropped from higher altitude. Targeting does not have to be pinpoint accurate. and Even intercepted drones will probably still be able to deliver their payload. I'd be interested to hear if leaflet drops over Russia is something that has been considered by Kiev. Well, in short, we don't know, Mark, but my instinct is that they would be quite hesitant to do so. For one, it would mean that uh, Kiev no longer has the deniability of the drone attacks on Russian cities. And there are legal, international legal ob- ramifications were they to do so. The uh, cost relative to the potential impact, of course, leaflet drops were notoriously quite unreliable and expensive, not only in lives in World War Two, but also just generally in terms of sending planes out there. And of course, also because the war online is arguably of far more importance in persuading the public over a protracted period, particularly when you're trying to appeal to the elites. Nonetheless, it is an interesting question off the back of this story of Russia resorting to old school tactics to try and spread their message and to subvert various countries around Europe. And I know Don will have more thoughts on that later. Now, it is our privilege to welcome back to the podcast Daniel Ridley of the Trident Defence Initiative, which has now trained over 8,000 Ukrainian soldiers and medics on the ground. Dan, thank you very much for your time today. I mean, I know it's precious. When we spoke on the phone earlier, I could hear gunfire in the background. And I know you've had numerous alarms going off uh, over where you are in Kharkiv. We last had you on several months ago. And obviously, a lot has happened since then. Very briefly, what changes have you seen in the training space due to the issues faced from the counteroffensive? It's a subject we've covered extensively on the podcast, but very interested to hear your perspective on this. Hi, Francis, and uh, hi to everyone else. Thank you for having me back on again. Uh, it's good to be here. Yeah, so we, we've seen a lot of uh, a lot of changes in the in the training space throughout the war, really, and and that has really just depended on where the Ukrainians were, where the Russians were in the, in the phases of the war. Obviously, at the very beginning, uh, we've been training since, you know, realistically the first day of the war. We were focused more on the defensive aspects. Uh, Ukraine was trying to hold as much of its territory as it could, as the Russians were sort of sort of flying into the country um, and trying to capture key areas. Once that stabilised and the Ukrainians looked towards their first uh, counter-offensives, which obviously happened in Kherson and Kharkiv, the training started to ramp up more towards assault tactics. We would consider our training adaptive. We have standardized and functional courses, but we consider our our training adaptive um, and we will really tailor that to what the units request and need. So in the the run up to to the last uh, counteroffensive, yeah, we moved into those those more offensive tactics, the assault tactics, and then back to defense again. And then obviously over the last last several months in the run up to this counteroffensive, um, it's been much more focused on assault tactics. And something that we've seen recently, obviously, there's been a lot of quite unfortunate and, and shocking videos of of Ukrainian soldiers encountering minefields with with Western equipment and, and, and with their sort of legacy equipment has been the influence of mines. So in reaction to that, we opened up a new course, a reconnaissance engineer course uh, that essentially covers the detection of mines and how to sort of find them, mark and avoid them. Something that Dom is definitely familiar with and yeah, move around them and, and not not make yourself uh, more casualties than you already have. Well, thanks for that, Dan. Now, We've covered on the podcast for several weeks now some of the reporting around problems in training provided by NATO and uh, others. What kind of feedback have you had from Ukrainian soldiers that you interact with on a daily basis? So I'd be a I'd be a sinner if I uh, I didn't completely correct you, but we we've just hit ten thousand soldiers trained in the last month. Unfortunately, or, or fortunately, however you look at it, uh, none of our our students that I've had, literally zero of them in the last over a year and a half now, have been through the Western training, and that that's purely a, a geographical coincidence. Uh, we're based out in the northeast of Ukraine, quite far east, and all of our soldiers are sort of actively participating in combat operations. 
solutions. They don't necessarily have the time to deploy on this training. But what we're seeing is, is a lot of feedback from the Ukraine space, obviously being in Ukraine myself, speaking to, to individuals and, and being in that sort of social network. And, and I'm a former Ukrainian soldier myself as well. So a lot of my friends that I serve with have attended this training. And unfortunately, especially in the run up to the counteroffensive and, and even now, we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of negative feedback from these Ukrainian soldiers, uh, especially in regards to things like Obviously, the, the training, I don't think, has evolved enough to where it began. I think the, the aspect of setting it up was to train sort of civilians to soldiers, uh, create a basic training platform to, to create soldiers themselves. And I don't think it's, it's adapted uh, as the war's gone on. So I'll, I'll quote a very good friend of mine that I served with, a Ukrainian soldier. He's now currently attending a leadership course in the UK. And his quote of it was, it's very, very basic learned anything particularly useful and it's been focused especially on uh, on basic skills and tactics this individual not obviously speaking for everyone served on two combat deployments with me has been injured multiple times since the beginning of the full-scale invasion has participated in, in lots of big battles down south so if you look at it from a realistic point of view he will have far more combat experience and experience in fighting conventional operations than say the average british soldier has but the average british soldier obviously has far uh, better training it just needs to be adapted to more of what the ukrainians ukrainian there was a, a recent sort of tweet thread and something that's been quoted quite here i, I met recently with the uh, the general in charge of training for the entirety of ukraine and, and we quoted this to him as well the ukrainian soldier speaking about training they've received in germany about how to deal with minefields and the effective response that the Ukrainian soldier got when he asked the foreign instructors, how do I how do we penetrate these these sort of multi-layered minefields was, uh, you know, push to the left or push to the right and try and circumvent the minefield. Obviously, unfortunately, that's that's not really possible in Ukraine as, as hundreds of kilometers stretches of the front line are heavily mined. So definitely there's a there's a. A bit of a either a lack of adaptation or a sort of assumption in the within the Western militaries that the Ukrainian soldiers they're getting, or an assumption of Ukrainian soldiers in general is that they need the most basic level of training, which, which is definitely uh, definitely applicable in a lot of ways. Um, but at the same time, you have to remember that majority of these soldiers have been fighting since February the twenty fourth of last year. Um, and they've participated in a lot of large scale operations. So they might not have had the training to do it effectively, but they've done it. They know what goes wrong. They know what happens. And it, it appears, you know, again, hearing from friends of mine that are on these courses or done these courses, that a lot of the times the training then turns to the Ukrainian soldiers teaching the, the, the soldiers that are, are teaching them from experience, of course. That's very interesting. Do you think it is possible? And if so, how? to rectify some of these deficiencies in the NATO-provided training? I, I would echo something that there's definitely said from, from individuals on the ground in Ukraine, and obviously there's a, there's a political aspect of it about uh, direct involvement and things like that, but obviously organisations that are in-country and, and already offering training, adaptive training, seeing direct feedback and tailoring the training to Ukrainian needs as a there's a term that um, I'm, I'm pretty sure I coined years ago when I was serving in the Ukrainian army, but it's something that I continue to use now is, is the Ukrainian NATO standard. I, I've participated in, in many sort of foreign military exercises in Ukraine prior to the full-scale invasion, um, trained alongside British, American, Italian, German soldiers. Um, and the training was always, it, it was always kind of a big failure in a lot of ways and or not enough training was given. Um, and that was purely because the sort of clean, very rigid NATO standard doesn't necessarily culturally apply very well to the Ukrainians. And it's not something that the Ukrainians pick up on very well. So we take what we try and do at our, our organization is, is take those uh, fundamentals as key fundamentals as life-saving skills and, and make them applicable for the Ukrainians in a way that the Ukrainians understand. Going forward, I, I just think there needs to be uh, definitely more of a feedback from the Ukrainians themselves. And the way you have to see it is the Ukrainians are effectively the customers. Just to clarify, my, my center is, a, is an official military center, but we're also a nonprofit, so we do not charge for any of the training. But I consider them my customers. They're coming to me for, for a product, for a training, and, and I want to deliver what's best for them. Obviously, I have quite a, a good insight into what's needed for them. I was one of them myself, and I was also a soldier in a NATO military. But it's something that I, I'm not in the trench. I'm not on the assault, and they are, and they have been. So hearing the feedback from them and 
and saying to them, hey, what works best for you? What works best for your current job, your current role? Where are you going next? Where are you now? And then creating some nuances in the training that's applicable to them. So I think, yeah, definitely changing the aspect that the majority of Ukrainian soldiers, ragtag civilians or or new soldiers, we would call them crows in the British Army, something like that, that they're not, these are quite battle-hardened men and women, and that they need a training that really adapts to them and, and, and works the best uh, for their current situation. Something that nobody in the Western militaries has experienced in a very, very long time. Fighting conventional fights were against tanks and air support and things like that. It's not a conflict that particularly the British Army has been involved in in a long time, um, and definitely nobody serving currently has a sort of one-to-one ground perspective of that so yeah speaking to your your uh, student base and adapting the training to what works best for them based on their experience thank you john that's very interesting i'm sure don will have some thoughts on that in a moment but before um i, I turn to dom just a couple more questions if i may Obviously, the counteroffensive now has been going on for several weeks, and I think it's fair to say there's been a mixed picture, or at least a perception of a mixed picture with regard to its successes. How has that affected morale where you are and perhaps the wider sense of the ground picture for an individual soldier? I think it's definitely important to go back to you know what we could call the first counteroffensive, the the Kherson sort of slide of hand, um, the Kharkiv counteroffensive, which was a, a blinding success, and then the the, the actual taking back of Kherson City. Um, you know, the, these weren't inch by inch hard-fought liberations. They were withdrawals by the Russian military, and they were pushes by the Ukrainian military. But it, it, it gave a sense of ease, I think, that this could... You could take back huge, huge amounts of territory in in quite quick fashion with an enemy, you know, retreating in pretty bad order. Unfortunately, that's not really the case. Russia had had taken a lot of territory very quickly at the beginning of the war, and they may not have had such a strong grasp on it. But it gave the it gave the population, you know, gave the gave the West and especially the people that support Ukraine in the West and also within Ukraine, it gave a lot of Ukrainian people, predominantly the civilians, a picture that counteroffensives are supposed to go like that. As, as we sort of know from time immemorial, these things don't uh, always pan out that easily. Plenty of reasons why the counteroffensive uh, took so long to start, sort of above my pay grade. But uh, when it did start, the Russians were ready in a lot of places for it. So we haven't seen those blinding successes that we, that we saw with the last one. And, and obviously that's had a, an impact. It's had an impact on people in the West and, and the Western powers. Um, and it's had an impact on on people in Ukraine as well. But as uh, as Don mentioned earlier, progress is being made, albeit you know uh, slowly, if that's what you want to call it. But you know, in a, in a reasonable and fashionable sense, the Ukrainians are adapting. They're learning from issues that they're facing down there. And obviously, it's very important that both the West and Ukraine do not underestimate uh, the enemy. Um, they are you know wildly incompetent, but they they clearly still have quite functional units and, and functional assets. Um, otherwise, we would uh, see Ukraine liberated already. From a ground perspective, from the the individual uh, soldier perspective, something you know, I spend a considerable amount of time with these guys. Wouldn't have seen a, a noticeable difference. Again, speed of action and and the the slow pace. Um, again, if you would call it that, doesn't necessarily mean a failure. It doesn't mean that things are going wrong. It just means they're not going in the way that is perceived. So there isn't necessarily loss of territories, especially not in the, the areas of the counteroffensive. But there's, there's, there's not a huge change of morale. The guys are still very motivated. You know, they're, they're, they're feeling sort of the, the support from the back. They're seeing this equipment coming in. They're seeing this equipment being utilized. And we've obviously seen a mixture of propaganda and a mixture of, of actual losses. But the equipment that's been sent here has been a, uh, has been a huge sort of morale booster to, to those soldiers. So, no, I wouldn't say the, the individual morale of a soldier has been affected whatsoever, really. That's interesting. And just one final question. You're obviously in the Kharkiv region at the moment. What would you say the situation is like there and the situation more broadly in sort of Kurpyansk and what we're hearing today? Yep. So I'm, I'm sure you've covered it in the last week or so as things have been announced. But obviously the uh, the Kupiansk direction and Liman direction coming into Kharkiv region, 
both both towns, cities, uh, what we call it, were liberated during the Kharkiv counteroffensive. The Russians have been pushing very, very hard on them towards the drawdown of the Bakhmut operation. And then as the Ukrainians have had their counteroffensive in the south and again in Bakhmut area, the Russians have pushed elements up there. So Liman was a, was sort of quite a, quite a well-known place, lots of battles and fighting over that at uh, the beginning of the war. And what's happening now is especially Russian airborne elements, the Vedavur, have been pushing uh, very hard towards Liman. And they've also made quite a few gains and successes towards Kupiansk, where, which sort of, uh, again, I'm, I'm sure you've mentioned it, but which led recently, uh, I believe last week, uh, the Ukrainian government to announce a mandatory evacuation from Kupiansk and the, the Kupiansk region, which is, which is located in Kharkiv Oblast. The way I see it, again, this is uh, an opinion and an educated opinion from being here is I, I think it is definitely uh, Russia's way of pulling uh, attention down from the south. They're using quite uh, experienced and quite capable troops up there that, that could otherwise be down in the south, fending off the Ukrainian counteroffensive. But they're, they're definitely making successes up there. Uh, a friend of mine was uh, there today, actually, in Kupiansk and uh, in the villages around it, which the Russians are pushing for. And his exact uh, words were, this is the next Bakhmud. This is uh, Bakhmud number two. Um, and for various reasons, uh, it's going to be sort of a, a long and hard fight for it. The Ukrainian defense ministry or military spokesperson actually announced a few hours ago that the Ukrainians are bringing reserves up there as the as the evacuation's happening. And the Storm Z units, which are being called the, the Shoiguists, they're predominantly being used up there as well. So, you know, Russia's sort of tactic of, of throwing meat at a problem seems to be working still in some ways. So, yeah, so that, that situation is developing. The Ukrainians obviously are seeing potential uh, potential losses up there as, as they've ordered a mandatory evacuation. So there's uh, plenty of people up there currently moving people out of that region. But uh, again, the way it's being coined by individuals on the ground is sort of a second back mood at the moment. Thank you, Dom. I'm sure you've been listening to this and have some questions for Dan. Dan, great to great to hear from you. Long time since I've heard anyone use the term crow, which I think was a, an old acronym for conscript recruit of war. I, I was called that many, many times and a flat slack tanky, but never mind. Dan, a question about whether the brand of NATO and, and Western training has been damaged at all by the experience down south. I wonder, are you aware of any chat through the through the ranks of people saying, it's all, it's all very good, but it's not the fight that we are seeing in front of us. We need to do something different. And is, is, are there any, any differences or any chinks in the army, if you like, between those that are trained by, by NATO and, and those that are sort of homegrown, homegrown trained? Is, 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 are there any signs of that? And do you think, it, if so, it will develop into a problem? Uh, obviously, I have a, a biased opinion. I, I run what is currently the, the largest training organization in Ukraine. And as much as I'd love to say our training is by far the best, obviously, we, we lack the, the facilities, funding and you know numbers that the, the NATO militaries have. Again, I, it's very difficult to say, oh, this is a failure, the, the, the counteroffensive, which again isn't a failure. It's just the, the time and pacing is, is not what people expected. It's very difficult to put any label of why that's happening, but I think the most realistic label is the the depth of the Russian defences down there, the the sort of uh, multi-layered defences, the the high concentration of minefields. The West didn't give these armoured vehicles to Ukraine to deflect bullets and drive drive into the centre of a gunfight. They gave these vehicles to penetrate minefields. the The vehicle itself is a is a piece of kit, it's a piece of material, and it's designed to hit to hit the mine, but preserve the crew inside, and then that's what these these vehicles have done. The issue is, it's very difficult to to watch Western equipment, expensive or, or well-known equipment, be lost. But I, I think the issue is that again, the training hasn't adapted. We've had to adapt our training. We're accustomed to requirement of what the soldiers need and want straight from the ground. Whereas I think, obviously, when the soldiers are being transited from within Ukraine with the exorbitant amounts of money it must cost to, to take those soldiers out, to take them to a, a Western training facility and then give them training. Um, obviously, you're going to somewhere where you're you're not in control. You're going to someone someone's base and uh, and you're on a course. You know, I'm sure you've done plenty of courses during your time. I did as well. You go on a course, you're you're effectively back in school, uh, schools out sort of thing. So 
you don't have an influence on what you're being taught. You're being taught it by, by the experts and, and you sit and listen and you soak up the information. The way we try and do things is that the Ukrainians are with the instructors, but the Ukrainians are in charge of the, of the training that they want. We do have a standard and a standardized course that we follow. But again, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't contribute it to a singular issue. The, the equipment being not good enough or the Western training not being good enough. I just think that it's not progressed far enough to to where the war is now the experience of the ukrainian soldiers what they've learned what they've learned in blood really and and there's no no better lesson no greater lesson than a lesson learned through through blood and the ukrainians have, have done that they've paid a hard price to do that so you know they they really need to have a greater influence on the training what they want what they need and the west should you know as the ukrainians being their customer base should be saying, yep, yeah, that's what you want, that's what you need, that's what you're doing, that's what we're going to give you. And I don't think that's the case at the moment. I think the case is that the West are looking at whether it be previous experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, which definitely doesn't apply here, wasn't wholly successful anyway, and then obviously going, hey, you've done this for the last year and a half plus, lost a lot of guys doing it, it lost a lot of equipment, how can we improve on this? How can we use what we have, whether it be our facilities, whether it be our instructors, whether it be our, uh, you know, financial system to support what you're doing and improve what you're doing? Thanks. And when these when these tactical adjustments have to be made, then do you think that these are prudent military decisions taken in the face of a of a change situation, or do you think that there are some in the in the Ukrainian command, sort of mid, mid and higher command levels, who who just revert to what they know and what they remember as as young men and women, and they're just sort of going back to to what they think will know, rather than a, a conscious decision to do it to employ a new a new way of tactics. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely elements of that, and 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 that's applicable to to any military. You know, the officers always know best. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. These these guys are doing the best of what they have, and obviously, not all of these units are able to get to the same place to the same training. They're not able to train together. They're not able to train in huge combined operations, which the Ukrainians are trying to commit to. And yet we're obviously seeing, even in some cases, Ukrainians doing things that we have seen before the Russians do. And there's a legacy Soviet tactics. Again, all those all those tactics were designed for something like what's happening now. The other issue is that really Ukraine's writing the book on this. But the issue is, as they're writing the book, they're bleeding on the pages. So it can be very difficult to, to get the exact you know, the exact way and the exact method doing on this if every time you, you try and write a line, you, you splatter it with blood. But unfortunately, there's no other option. Again, the, the West hasn't experienced a war like this in, in a long time. And realistically, even the East, in all those sort of post-Soviet conflicts, has never really been one of this large scale. It's two conventional militaries batting up against each other. Something like Chechnya, you know, the Russians had a massive advantage there. Whereas in Ukraine, they're definitely disadvantaged, but they, they have a lot of advantages in other ways. Uh, I think it's just very important that that training and things are brought together on a on an even even kill. I mean, again, I think the the term Ukrainian standard, Ukrainian NATO standard, sorry, really does hit home with it. The 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 NATO militaries and the training cadres really have to adapt to what the Ukrainians have not only experienced but how the Ukrainians do things. Ukraine was prior to the war. I was on one of the the evaluations, NATO evaluations, and you know. We were fantastic at the job we were doing, which was, you know, holding trenches and fighting out in the east. But when it came to what NATO required of us, we were we were pretty lackluster in that. So definitely, yeah, there needs to be a, uh, how would you say, like a, a redesign and an adaptation of, of what training is being offered outside the country. But again, is it feasible for this training on a large scale to continue outside of Ukraine? Probably not. Uh, again, because you're taking large amounts of troops out of the battle space. But if that's what needed to be done, that's what needs to be done. And I'm sure a lot of uh, smart people with a lot of stars on their shoulders know a lot more about it than I do. Thanks, Dan. And just finally, the um, the attitude of the and the morale of the people coming through to start their training now that they now that the war's been going on for nearly eighteen months. This counteroffensive's going on since the start of June. You've got a much better. Everyone has a much better idea of what the Russian defence is, which is he- big, heavy, deep, heavily mined. Do you f- see the attitude of people joining training to be any different to that that you saw at the start? And has the 
has the inflow of of arms and equipment from the West has that started to bleed through? Are there I only hear I hear a few anecdotes, which of course the plural of anecdotes, not data. But I hear a few anecdotes of people saying, people thinking, oh well, don't worry, we'll, we'll get another leopard tank or another Bradley or, or what have you. Do you. The attitude of people coming through training has it shifted at all? Uh, yes, yeah, so, so first to answer about the, the the attitude towards training for the I think this is the third or the fourth time I've been on the pod now, and I'll say the same thing every time. The, the motivation and the uh, the attitude for training is, ju- is just incredible. We recently hit 10,000 total troops trained. We, we opened up a number of, of extra courses. We now have an FPV drone academy, uh, multiple, multiple drone courses, engineer courses, multiple different medical courses to combat medic uh, and our infantry course. And every single one of those courses, every week, sometimes I do wish for a bit of a break, but Every single one of those courses has been completely filled and every time overfilled, always more soldiers than I request. But the, the motivation for that training has just been incredible. The guys want the training and I think they're much more comfortable and happy getting it in Ukraine and having their influence on it. Um, again, the, they come to us and, and we try and allow them to direct the training on where they see fit because uh, you know, even even someone like myself, I've been in many conflict zones o- over the last 10 years, but the average Ukrainian soldier has far more combat experience than the vast, vast majority of, of my instructors and uh, and even myself. So, yeah, trying to get that that knowledge from them. But the motivation has just been incredible. Um, I, I haven't really worked directly with any soldiers that have passed through the NATO training other than the friends that I served with in the Ukrainian military. Uh, so I wouldn't know directly face to face from a student who's been through both. Uh, but yeah, motivational-wise, they're, they're more than happy to receive the training. They, they understand they need it. Uh, just some of the guys that i got at the moment, I've got around 100 students on, a, on an infantry course, and, and these are guys that have, that have fought in Bakhmud over the last year multiple times. They've uh, fought up on the Russian border. They've fought in the Kupiansk and Kremina directions, and tons of combat experience, but they love being here for the training. It's a great chance for them to sort of uh, have a bit of rehabilitation, but then also... Uh, also learn some new skills and, and some more standardized skills. In regards to the kit and equipment, I, I would disagree. That's the Ukrainian aspect. I suffered for almost 20 months in total uh, on the front line before the war, living in trenches and covered in fleas and, and under-equipped, underfunded. And it, it, it would have been, a if you'd said to me a few years ago, you know, one day you'll have, don't worry, one day you'll have leopards and Abrams and Challengers and and M4s and, and shiny rockets and all this, I, I would have laughed, you know, it, it seemed impossible. So the fact that Ukrainians have had those um, and they now have that option to have this equipment that even a year ago seemed crazy that we would get these these tanks. Um, I don't think the Ukrainians are very, you know, nonchalant with it, like we're going to throw them into the fray and don't worry, our, our rich rich sugar daddies from the West will, will provide us more. That's, that's definitely not the case. You know, the Ukrainians are more than happy to have this stuff, but what people need to understand is it's being sent... Um, and not something that we love to do in the British Army, which is get new shiny gear and then keep it in the stores for, for an extended period of time just so we can look at it. The Ukrainians are using it, and that's what it was sent for. They could keep it out in the West or in the rear to, you know, for photo opportunities, but it's been sent here to be used, and it's been sent here to save lives, the lives of the crew and the lives of Ukrainian soldiers, and it's been sent here to take back Ukrainian territory. Um, and in the process of that, equipment is lost, equipment is damaged, but that's the, re- the reality of the war, and that, that's something people need to understand. You know, It's not a, a devastating loss when we, when we lose this equipment. It's, uh, it's just a fact and a casualty of war. Well, thank you very much, Dan, for your very, very insightful thoughts today. It just goes for us to have our final thoughts. So can I start, first of all, Dom, with yours? So three Bulgarian nationals suspected of spying on behalf of Russia have been arrested in the UK and charged by counter-terrorist police here following a, an investigation. So this comes from the BBC, our colleagues over there. They revealed that the defendants were first or were arrested in February under the Official Secrets Act and been remanded in custody since. The news has only just come out. The individuals are accused of working for the Russian security services. They have been named, and as they've been charged, we are able to name them. So Orlan Rusev, who's 45, from well, based here in Great Yarmouth in Norfolk. Beza uh, Zambazov, who's 41, of Harrow in northwest London. And Katrin Ivanova, who's 31, also in, in Harrow. The suggestions that, that she and Zamb- uh, Zambazov are partners. They've been charged with possessing identity documents with, quote, improper intention 
quite what that means, I'm not entirely sure. But this includes passports and identity cards and other documents, official documents for the UK, Bulgaria and at least half a dozen other European countries. They've all been living in the UK for years uh, with a variety of uh, of jobs, according to the BBC investigation. And kudos to Daniel de Simone and, and Jeremy Britton, the BBC journalists who wrote the article and the investigation and the team behind them. These defendants are due to stand trial in the Old Bailey in January. They've yet to register, enter any pleas. All I would say on the back of it is alleging that they were working for the Russian security services. That covers a multitude of things from being members of those said agencies to being other state intelligence officers who might be working on behalf of Russia, or they could be civilians coerced or volunteering their their time and energies. We do not think that there are lots of Russian spies left in this country, certainly official ones, after the British government kicked out 23 in the wake of the Skripal uh, nerve agent poisoning in 2018. But I guess the point about sleeper cells, as this allegedly might be, is that you don't know they're there until something like this happens. So a good report there from the BBC. We're covering it, but they uh, it's their it's their scoop, and they've done it's on their it's on their website, and you'll see more of that and uh, and more to come. Probably not much more before January before the trial starts. But uh, yeah, a good a somewhat worrying story there from the BBC. Thanks very much for that, Dom. Dan, you've got the very final thoughts for today. Definitely stepping out of my lane a bit here, but uh, uh, definitely on the sanctions and the economy, something that's just come out in the last half an hour. The Ukrainians have identified that the missiles launched uh, on Ukraine that hit Lviv and Lutsk and, and other places yesterday, uh, that those missiles were produced in 2023, and they include, you know, over over 30 uh, plus foreign components are definitely showing that the the sanctions are definitely not affecting Russian uh, missile production. And in in regards to to myself and my organisation, you know, we we currently have over 200 students currently on our our courses, and we continue to to provide training for the Ukrainian armed forces. You know, any any things that support and uh, and exposure for the organisation is fantastic. So just again, thank you to yourself, Dom, and David. Obviously, he's not here at the moment for having me on again. And as always, it's a it's a pleasure. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released do please refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear. And executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.